Good morning, everybody, friends and family that are joining us online this morning. I'm pumped up after that music. That really got me going. I was a little lazy, a little slow this morning, but now I'm ready. <laughs> that music got me there. I want to thank our uh, Story Worship band for um, getting us going. And uh, wow, we are, uh, we're excited to be here, even though this is our seventh straight week of online-only worship. Wow, uh, it's, uh, it's really good to be here still. Listen, I don't know uh, how you're doing, all of you. I don't know where you're at. Uh, last week, I asked you to leave a scale of one to 10, just how you're doing in the comments. One being, if I have to see these people I live with one more time, I'm just going to lose my ever-loving mind. And 10 being, I'm great, this is awesome. I'm, I'm an introvert. I've been trying to separate myself from people for years. Just share that again in the comments, because as you shared last week, it's dynamic. It's moment to moment. You never really know how you're going to be feeling any given moment of any day in this COVID-19 crisis. We'd like to know how you're doing. You can share that again in the comments if you're watching worship on Facebook Live or, uh, or on YouTube today. Uh, be sure to let us know how you're doing. Uh, listen, this, these are interesting times for everyone, including for your church here at The Story. If you go to church here, you know that we run on a, a pretty shoestring budget. We don't have a lot of fat to cut out of our uh, operating ministry budget each year. And this year is no different. Um, but what's changed this year is, uh, you might call it the revenue side of business here, as everyone has struggled, especially as uh, our uh, local oil and gas industry has been struggling. Every kind of organization, including this one, is questioning um, you know, how we can make it into the future. I want to tell you how encouraged and grateful I've been um, to God and to all of you for your generosity so far uh, through this crisis. I get texts every other day probably from somebody going, hey, I've got a little extra. Tell me where I can send it and how I can do the most good with it. And those kinds of generous thoughts and acts just, I think, speak to the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus because that means we're walking what we talk. So um, I want to thank all of you that have already been generous, and I want to encourage all of us to continue uh, searching for ways to be generous and to support the ministries of the story, all the things God is doing through this crisis. I am amazed by how you continue to be the church and the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, the easy and best way to do that is just to visit thestory.church/donate. Um, I would be so grateful. I know it's an extra step for some of you. Um, you can choose to donate one time or you can set up a recurring donation. Either way, we're so thankful from the bottom of our, of our hearts. Listen, I hope you're finding ways to stay grateful through all of this. I know it's been an interesting couple of weeks in Houston, especially as the economy continues to do what it does. So I hope you're staying grateful, continuing to count your blessings and to grow closer to Jesus through all of this. He's teaching me something, y'all. He's teaching me how to rely more and more on him and on his approval, and nothing short of that. And so even though I think, uh, you know, this has been a difficult season, I think there are silver linings like that that I hope you're searching for as well. As always, if you want to stay in touch with everything going on at the story or get connected in a, a, a new way at the story, um, we've got a great way to do that. Just visit thestory.church slash contact, and you can, uh, you can find ways to get connected there. If you're brand new here to the story today, extra special welcome to you. Uh, we don't know each other. My name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here. And, and if it's your first time joining us, I just want you to know this message today and next Sunday is going to be a little bit out of the ordinary, a little bit abnormal. I don't always stand up here and preach about hell. 
Okay, so um, we've talked about the afterlife for four weeks already. In the last two Sundays, we talked specifically about heaven, and this Sunday and next are going to lead us straight to hell. Wait, I want to rephrase that. Not lead us to hell, but teach us about hell. Uh, and so this is, uh, this is the first time we've done this in quite some time. It's not a pleasant subject, is it? But we have to know what Christians believe about hell and why. And so we're going to be asking that question today as, as we continue uh, to march through this series. What is hell and why do we as Christians, why are we supposed to believe in it? Now, I know that it's a, a common or a popular thing these days for people, especially pastors and Christian leaders, to avoid this subject altogether. It's always interesting to me when people say, I've never heard a message about hell in my life. I've been going to church my whole life, but I never heard anybody talk about it. That's because it's kind of in style in our generation to not talk about hell at all. Or even if you do talk about hell, just to kind of water it down. But listen, if, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, as unpleasant as it might feel sometimes, we have to take what he said about hell seriously too. And what Jesus said about hell really could not have been much clearer. Jesus believed that hell was a real place of eternal torment, um, and, and it is levied as a judgment uh, of people uh, and a condemnation of their, of their sins. Now, we're going to talk more about what all that means, but first and foremost, I just want you to know this isn't just coming from me or people like me who want to scare you into heaven. This is coming from Jesus himself. And so how do we reckon with that, um, that Jesus said and believed about hell? Because to many of us, especially non-religious people, I think, this concept of an eternal place of torment and fire where the body and soul are destroyed, this can seem so out of touch. It can seem so barbaric. It can seem just really archaic. And so a lot of Christians shy away from even talking about this, but I'm going to talk about today how I think that when it's properly understood in its context, in the context of the greater Christian narrative, the idea of hell actually makes more sense than you might think. I took my first job when I was 14 years old. I worked in a cemetery in Red Lake, Texas. And my grandmother was in charge of this cemetery, and she made my cousin and me the assistant groundskeepers of the Red Lick Cemetery. And she paid us about $4 an hour in the hot Texas summer days to mow the grass and uh, collect all the clippings and the leaves and clean it up. And then we also had to reinforce the headstones that had fallen or sunken into the earth. It was a really creepy job to have at 14. But I'm grateful for that job because you learn a lot about life when you spend that much time close to death. And these lessons that I learned are lessons that most young people in America are not privy to anymore because we've shooed death away into the institutional world of hospitals and nursing homes and funeral homes. And we don't really access death the way people are used to. But when you do, it teaches you something about life itself. I learned two big lessons working in that cemetery. Um, first of all, I learned, and I hate to be a downer on a Sunday morning, but this is the first lesson I learned at a young age in the cemetery, is that one day it'll be my name on one of those headstones. And I hate to tell you this, but we're all going to die one day. I know it's not pleasant to think about, 
but it's important to be realistic. One day it'll be your name on a tombstone. One day it'll be your funeral. One day we will all be socially distanced six feet apart in the ground. <laughs> it's true for all of us. Death waits for no man. That seems a little grotesque, I suppose, but as a 14-year-old, it really spoke to me that not every tombstone in that cemetery was for, was for some old person who lived to a ripe old age. There were some 14-year-olds in that cemetery. There were babies who died the day they were born. There were soldiers whose bodies were never found. It was all across the spectrum of life. And I learned something important about death by working there. The second thing that I learned is that death is just pregnant with mystery. There is something mysterious and wondrous about death itself that every person who works in the arena of death, whether it's healthcare or funerals or mortuary, any of that, they will always tell you the stories of what they've seen and what they've heard, what they've witnessed. They have stories to tell, as do I, about my time working in the cemetery. Things happen to me. I experience things that I can only describe as supernatural, extraordinary. And I remember um, feeling in that cemetery that no matter how long I worked there, even after the heebie-jeebies wore off and I wasn't scared anymore, I always felt like I wasn't alone. I always felt like I was surrounded or somebody was watching me at all times. It was weird. And I can't just chalk it up to uh, happenstance or just a feeling. It was a real experience. And so there's something that was instilled in me in an early age about the afterlife. And death taught me that. Being around death taught me that. Okay? And I'm grateful for that today. It's not something that a lot of us uh, experience um, anymore, that kind of closeness to death. Now, <clears throat> I, I think that I continued believing in the afterlife even when I stopped believing in God. Isn't that weird? Like later in my life, when I became an agnostic and an atheist, I, I still believed that life went on beyond life, beyond death. And that was because of what I experienced at that first job of mine. Now, most Americans do believe that life goes on beyond death. Uh, between 72 and 78% of Americans believe in heaven. Only 50% of Americans believe in hell. So the 78% number is about the same as um, Americans who believe in God. And so what this tells you is that there are a bunch of people in America who still believe in God and still believe in heaven, but really struggle with this idea of a judgment day. Uh, the idea that we will face judgment for our sins. A lot of us are really okay with the idea that we'll be rewarded for our good decisions in life, but we struggle with the idea that we'll be judged for our bad ones. And that's telling a little bit, I think, about our culture and, and how self-centered our culture and, and we, frankly, can be sometimes. And there are, um, I think, among Christians who still believe in hell, Christians who still talk about hell as a real place, there's a lot of hesitation these days because we face a lot of criticism from secular-minded people who say that our belief in hell is, is mean and that it's judgmental and, and that it's in some ways bigoted to say some people are going to have hell to pay for the lives they've lived. We even face criticism from more sophisticated Christians who say that we shouldn't talk about hell that way anymore. Even though Jesus did, he didn't really mean what he said. 
And so sometimes we um, pull back from the conversation. But here's what I really think. I think more people believe in hell than that 50% statistic would lead you to believe. I think there is, among sophisticated secular circles, a deeper-seated belief in judgment and hellfire, uh, a secret secular belief in hell uh, beneath the surface. I've seen it since this COVID-19 crisis has struck. It's been really interesting to watch the secular world's response to an apocalyptic event like this one. And you see it in the media. I've seen it in social media. There's one very famous atheist who's kind of made a living on making fun of Christians or criticizing Christians for being too mean, for being judgmental, for you know wanting to send people to hell all the time. And, and then last week when the oil prices crashed, uh, he took to social media and he said, um, maybe these oil prices are uh, the universe telling big oil it can go to hell. I found that really interesting (laughs) that someone who's made a living on criticizing Christians for sending people to hell is now sending people to hell. And I, I guess it's only mean to believe in hell whenever you disagree with the guest list, whenever you disagree with who's going there. There's an actress uh, named Jamila Jamil, um, who is very popular, I'll just be honest and tell you, uh, she has said some of the most vile things I've ever seen on Twitter. And that's saying a lot because it's Twitter. But she said some extraordinarily vile things about unborn defenseless babies, including her own. And uh, it's it's been a little tough to see some of the things that she has said. Um, But then this past uh, season, sort of brought out a different side in her. And and she took to Twitter in the aftermath of COVID-19 and and the quarantine, and she said, I can't help but wonder if this virus is the clapback from Mother Earth that we've been waiting for. Now, just to be clear, this is where we are now. Atheists and some secularists are now suggesting that there is, in fact, an intelligent force in the universe that exacts justice, sometimes in the form of the death penalty, hundreds of thousands of death penalties as punishment for human sin. That's a very interesting phenomenon to pay attention to. Okay, enough about what other people are saying and thinking about the afterlife or hell. What do Christians believe about this concept and and why do we believe it? Um, as as a part of this series, you probably have noticed that we're talking a lot about NDEs, these near-death experiences, uh, stories that people share when they die for a time and are brought back from death and they live again. Um, and so they come back telling stories, many of them about um, what they experience. And we've talked about the heavenly stories. We've talked about the ones where people experience the light and love of God. And those were the fun stories to hear. But as we'll see today, not all of these NDE stories are heavenly. I have an overdose. The ambulance comes, they pick me up, and all I remember is that they're loading me up into the back of the ambulance. And I hear this voice that says, just give up. I had known from some time in that afternoon that I was dying. I never thought to pray, never thought about God. 
I knew that there was no life after death, and so the thought of death was just extremely terrifying because it just means end. I went into a spiral of depression, and it led me to active alcoholism at 21 years of age. My dad checked me into a hospital, and the second night that I'm there, my vision instantly went black. I'm now down, descending lower and lower into nothingness. And I just keep falling and falling and falling. It feels like somebody grabs me and drops me in this outer darkness. And I start racing down this black tunnel. And so as I'm going down, the next thing that comes to my head is, oh my God, I, I died and I'm going to hell. The people encircled me and kind of started leading me. As we journeyed, I'm aware I can't see anything anymore. It's pitch black. One study done of people who reported near-death experiences, and 23% actually had hellish experiences. So not every near-death experience is uh, blissful. At this point, I'm feeling more and more anxiety, more and more uh, pain than I even I, I felt on my worst day alive. There was no doubt in my mind, the hell of the Bible, this is where I am, this is where I'm gonna be forever. It's almost like there's an absence of hope, there's an absence of love, it's the absence of God. All right, so uh, listen, you can choose to believe these stories or not. I, I find them compelling, but you might just think, well, they're, they're anecdotal. They're nice stories, um, but that doesn't mean they're true. Okay, that's fair enough. What I wanted to know is that um, stories like these, while they're interesting, are not the reason why Christians believe uh, that hell is real. The reason why we believe that hell is real is because of Jesus. Jesus, um, you know, you can... You can take him or you can leave him. You can say he's God and he had everything right, or you can say he was a, a failed um, prophet and he had everything wrong, but you can't pick and choose with Jesus. And Jesus talked incessantly about hell. Jesus had more to say about hell than everyone else in the Bible put together. He was always hoping and trying to warn people about hell. Why? I, I can only assume he warned us about hell because we're in danger, because there's something we should be watching out for. And so if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we have to look at what he says. For example, um, Matthew 10, 26 to 28, when he said, do not be afraid of them. He's talking about people. Um, nothing concealed will, will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus clearly believed in hell. Another example, Matthew 13, 35 to 43. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus was always warning people like this. And so the question, I think, is that if hell is such an awful place, if hell is such a hateful place, then how could a God of love send people there? How could a God who is love, supposedly, send people to an eternity of fiery torment? This is probably the most commonly asked question when it comes to this topic. Well, there's three things I want you to know today 
about the Christian understanding of hell. And the first is that it is founded upon the premise that God is love. So it's not like we have loving God in one compartment and fiery hell in another. A real Christian understanding of hell brings those two worlds together and says, without hell, God could not be love. And you might be wondering, like, how could that be? I mean, I don't understand how it's either this or that. I'm not, maybe you're you're thinking, I'm I'm not saying that, Uh, You know, I want to go to hell. I'm not saying I want to burn forever. I'm just saying I don't want to be like you Christians. I'm just saying I might not believe in God. I'm just saying I I might not love God. And maybe there has to be a third way, right? Like there's awful people that can go to hell and you Christians, you can have your heaven. I just kind of want to live my life. Well, again, if you look at Jesus, he doesn't mention that other path. Jesus talks about two roads a narrow one that leads to heaven, eternity with God, and a wide one that leads to hell, eternity separate from God. And, you know, the the whole point of this is to say that God um, uh, wants to love us and to be loved by us. And if we spend our lives doing anything but that, slowly but surely, we will find ourselves on this wide path. And and even if you think I'm just living my life for myself, I'm not hurting anybody, I'm just being me, Jesus would say even that path is disguised. It is the wide path in disguise. And eventually you'll find yourself falling prey to your own idolatries. We will talk more in detail about that concept next week. But uh, primarily, I just want you to know that the idea of of hell is, uh, is really founded in the idea of God as love. Because God, because he is love, gives us the choice to choose this path or that one. Love requires that kind of freedom. Love requires it. And God is not willing to, uh, you know, condemn us for no reason, or he's not willing to just willy-nilly say, you burn in hell forever. But what he does say is, love me or not. And if you choose not to love him, he will, he will let you go. And that is where uh, the danger comes in for all of us. Look, I can't really imagine a God of love hatefully sending everyone to hell, but I, I can imagine myself loving me and my idols more than I love God. I can't imagine a scenario where I choose my own way over the way of God. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. All right. So, um, this is, uh, this is an important uh, point to make about the question, do, uh, does a loving God send people to hell forever? The answer is, uh, he does not. He does not condemn them. The biblical answer is, they condemn themselves. The God who is loved does not condemn anyone. 
to hell. The number of people in hell right now whom God has sent there is zero. I mean, the, the evidence in the New Testament couldn't be clearer. There is just one passage after another that indicates the, the concept of self-condemnation. Titus 3.11 says, You can be sure such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Romans 2.1 says, You have no excuse. You're condemning yourself. 1 Timothy 5.12 says, Thus they bring condemnation onto themselves. Those who are in hell condemn themselves. All right. So uh, I don't think most people get this from Christians. I think most Christians fail to communicate this. And sometimes the most vocal Christians are even proud of the fact that God is the one who condemns the people that we don't like into hell. The Bible says whatever condemnation exists on earth or in hell It's not from above. That's a call coming from inside the house or inside your own hell head because the the gates of hell are locked from the inside, right? And so the, the concept for Christians here is that when Jesus died on the cross, when the God of blood was spilled, that was a payment precious enough, costly enough to cover the debt incurred by every sin committed by everyone in all times. And so when you choose to trust God and love him, you receive that payment for your debt. But choosing not to love God in light of what he's done for you is to reject his gift. It is to say, I know you don't condemn me, but I don't care. I know that's who you really are, but I don't care. I know that your voice speaking to me, but I don't want to hear it. I'm good. I just want to be me. I want to live my life. I want to have the things I enjoy. I want to live for my pleasure, my satisfaction, my fulfillment. And according to the New Testament, that is the slow incremental path to hell. That is the wide road. Because you were created for one true purpose, and that is to know God and love God and to be known and loved by God. Whatever condemnation remains in your life is coming from within you and not from God. That's so important to understand when we talk about the Christian idea of hell. Third, and this is where I think the hope comes in. People always ask, is there hope in hell? Third, thing I want to say today is that Jesus never stops searching. God never stops calling out for those he loves. He loves you. He doesn't condemn you. And he'll never stop searching for you. The earliest Christians had this weird belief that we don't really talk about much anymore unless you go to a church where you say the Apostles' Creed and you say that part where Jesus descended into hell. And it's another case of the watering down of this idea because in a lot of churches, they take that line of the creed out. It's too weird. We don't want to think about it. But the earliest Christians believed that between crucifixion on Friday and resurrection on Sunday, that Saturday, Jesus descended into hell and proclaimed the gospel to the lost souls who were imprisoned there. What an image. There's not like a ton of biblical support for this. There's one verse I'll share in just a minute 
But this idea was present in the earliest days of Christianity that Jesus went to hell and proclaimed to the captives there the freedom that he could afford them. It kind of paints a funny picture if you think about it. Like Satan's just hanging out in his office on a Saturday morning and there's a knock at the door (laughs) and he looks through the people and he's like, Jesus Christ, this place, <laughs> this place is a mess. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> but Jesus breaks down the door, invites himself in, proclaims the gospel to the captives, and then leads a parade out of hell on a Saturday, the Saturday after the crucifixion. That's the image the Christians had of what happened between his death and his resurrection. How did they get this image? That's not something people would just make up. Out of nowhere, that's something Jesus must have told them. Well, Peter was the only one who wrote about this. And Peter was as close to Jesus as just about anybody. And Peter, we know, had secret one-on-ones with the resurrected Jesus after Easter Sunday. And so Jesus must have told Peter something about what happened. Like, Peter, I know Friday was rough, but you have no idea what Saturday was like. Let me tell you what happened Saturday. It was hell, right? And so he... He tells him this, and then Peter writes about it in his letter called 1 Peter. And this is 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, where he writes, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Wow, what? Jesus went and proclaimed the gospel in hell to the people who were disobedient in the days of Noah? Where did Peter get this idea of Jesus wasn't the one who told him? I don't know. People always want to know if there's hope if there's hope for those who die without Jesus, if there's hope for your loved one who is gone from this life and you know they didn't have a relationship with Jesus, there's a lot of fear and anxiety there. Is there a chance after this life? Listen, I don't know for sure. I can't say with 100% certainty. There's not a lot in scripture about that specifically, but I do know um, two things. The first thing I know about this is that Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And then he told a story about the shepherd who had 99 sheep in the pen, safe and sound, but he had one that was lost. And he went out in the darkness of night to ceaselessly search for the sheep that was lost until he found him and brought him home. I know that about Jesus. And I also know that some of the people who've had negative near-death experiences, that they came back telling stories about hell. And some of them said that even as they were being led down a long corridor into hell and they knew they were going to hell, Jesus came looking for them. You know, God has removed every barrier between us and himself except one, our free will. Our pride is all that can keep us separated from God. But God loves us enough to pay for justice so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Indy ears speak of a border or a boundary. They knew that once they crossed, they couldn't come back to earth. Because they hadn't crossed into eternity fully, the people you just heard from still had a chance to call out to God. Listen to their experience. 
as I'm thinking about there's no hope, there's no way out, this memory comes of myself as a little boy sitting in a Sunday school classroom singing, Jesus Loves Me. And I could see myself vividly, so innocent, so sweet. I thought, enough of this, I'm done. I don't have anything else. Jesus, please save me. And when I said that, hands and arms emerge out of this impossibly beautiful white light. In that light, I could see me and all the gore, and I was roadkill. These hands and arms came out and they reached down and they touched me, and when they touched me, all that gore began to just dissolve and I became whole. As I cry out to the Lord and I say, God, I need you, it feels like everything just kind of stopped. It's just me and God now having a conversation. I feel his peace. I feel his love. I feel his presence. I yell, yes, into nothingness. I yell, yes. As soon as I do, I'm instantly back. But this time in the hospital room, there's tangible peace in the room. And I see written on the wall a Bible verse. It's the verse John 3.16, and it was glowing, it was white hot. I think that the concept of judgment for things we've done and left undone in this life, I, I think that's something that people are generally okay with. I, I, don't, I think people are wired for justice. And so that, as a concept, as an idea, is acceptable. I think the main reason why people are so turned off by the Christian understanding of hell isn't because of hell, but because of Christians. And I think if you have ever used hell as an excuse to walk away from Christianity, it probably had more to do with the kinds of Christians you were um, exposed to. Because when it comes to this subject, some Christians can really be jerks about it and can really pretend to know more than, we, than the Bible says we know. I, know. I grew up in the Bible well. I know what it's like to be around Christians who seem to know for sure who's going to hell, even though the Bible says they don't. Only God above knows. They knew somehow. What a miracle, right? I remember as a young person sitting through this Worship service, it was a revival. It was a Baptist revival. If you don't know what that is, you're probably not from the South. Look it up. Anyway, it was a Baptist revival. And the preacher just really got on a roll when he was talking about hell and, and who's going there. And he said, the Democrats are going there, liberals, right? He said that those Muslims are going there. And then he said, those gays and lesbians are going there. And every time he said something, the energy built in the room and it was almost ecstatic. It was fever pitch. It was almost joyful. And I thought to myself, this, this can't be right. And it wasn't. If you know nothing else about Jesus and his view of hell today, you need to know that almost every time he spoke of hell, he spoke of it as a warning to religious people. Not to those on the outside looking in necessarily. He spoke to those who were so self-secure, so secure in their own self-righteousness that they thought they didn't need any help from God. The only people that needed God are those on the outside, those out there, those people we don't like. Hell's going to be full of people we don't like. What a coincidence. God, through Jesus, God says, no, that's not how it works. Be warned. Because your religion, your religious identity can't save you either. That's just one more thing you can attach yourself to, one more thing you can love more than God. 
Jesus spoke about hell and fire and danger and judgment, not to scare non-religious secular people. He raised the warning flag so that we would all know that we're in some kind of danger here, that we're all susceptible to this because it's not really a matter of God falling out of love with us. It's not really a matter of God ceasing to speak to us, which are unthinkable things in the Christian's mind. It's really a matter of God continuing to love us, but we don't care as much as we used to. We don't need it like we once did. It's really a matter of God continuing to speak to us, but we're not listening for it because we're good. And that's a danger that we can all relate to. That's a trap that we can all fall in. That's why Jesus spoke so often on the subject because he loves you and he doesn't want that for you. He wants you to walk this better path to this better place, to live in his love and his light forever. And he came to show us how to walk that path. And it's so simple. There's no 10 step plan. There's no like list of rules you must follow to a T. There's just a relationship of love There's just a word of trust. God, I can't do this by myself. I need you. God, I'm not perfect. Forgive me. God, save me from myself. That's it. If you want to feel a sense of security in the face of this fearful vision of hell, all you need to do is say, God, I love you more than anything. Even if you don't believe it in your heart yet, speak it. God, I want to love you more than anything. Speak it until it is. Jesus came to give us that choice. Praise God by his mercy. Even though we may not deserve it, he gave us the choice to love him and be loved by him, not just today, but forever, in spite of our sin and forever. Listen, don't let the Christians you've interacted with in the past, if they've been too judgmental or harsh, don't let them speak for God anymore. Talk to God about God. Trust God. And what he says about you is that you are not condemned. Not by him. You are loved. You are forgiven. You're free to choose him above all else. That's heaven. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your tough love. Thank you for the warning. Thank you for shaking us loose from our idols today because without a word of warning, we could be lost. Forgive us as church leaders and churches and Christian folks for really sidestepping this important subject of hell because truth is we're all in danger from time to time of falling prey to the wide path of clinging more tightly to our idols than we do to you. Help us to speak with courage and not with a judgmental spirit, but with a loving one about this choice you give us and what it really means to be loved by you and to put you first. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.